Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Carlos Bla, who is the CEO of LeanMind, a software engineer and the author of the book Sustainable Code in Spanish. Carlos joins us today from the Canary Islands. Carlos Bla, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that we can make this happen. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? For me, there are four simple rules that are based on the Ken Speck uh, rules on simple design. And they are that the tests, uh, the code must have tests. And those tests uh, must be sustainable, maintainable. It doesn't matter if you write tests, but then nobody can uh, maintain them. The abstractions in the code must be appropriate. I really like the sentence by uh, Sandy Metz. Uh, she states that it's better to have duplication than the ground abstraction. And I really like that. And the last one is that the code should express the intent of the programmers. So it should be doing exactly uh, what the programmers intended the code to do. One of the things you mentioned there was the importance of having tests, but also making sure that they can be maintainable. What do you believe kind of contributes to tests becoming unmaintainable? Uh, Many things. Uh, Naming is one of them. So exactly like the production code, if the names don't tell you anything, then you have a hard time understanding the code. The same applies to the name of the tests. Um, But also uh, the simplicity, the uh, feedback loop, if you are stating the cases um, in a way that that communicate the intent. So pretty much the same things that apply to production code maybe apply to tests. And you know how, how difficult it is to run and configure the environment when, when they break, how fast do you find the issue, what it is? Uh, so it's um, a combination of, say, qualities. Something else that, you know, on the topic of testing, is there a strategy that you take with the people that you're working with, whether, you know, we'll dive into a little bit more about what your company does and types of services, but as far as when you're working in an existing environment where, I mean, existing software code base and, say, the test to your, maybe your, perspective isn't terribly well-maintained so far, but you're trying to improve on that, how do you kind of like strategize going in there and figuring out where to start? I, I often talk with people about, well, let's talk about the, the most mission-critical parts of the, the software or things like that, and they try to want, they advocate for writing tests there. And I'm always a little suspicious that that's actually probably one of the most difficult areas to probably write tests if there's not a lot of existing testing. So how do you kind of navigate that and try to get in there to get some early proof of concepts on implementing struct testing into an existing environment where it's not necessarily been a priority for the team? Mm. We try to be very pragmatic. So if there is a part of the code that is running well, there are no defects in there and there are no need for changes in the code. We don't care if the code is horrible there. We don't go there. We don't change what is functioning. So we try to identify what are uh, the pains and what brings more uh, value to the client. And so what are the parts of the code that are even more value, more critical? And, and then from there, we 
may plan for different uh, testing strategies. So one could be end-to-end testing, uh, so consuming the whole system as a black box and uh, you know sending inputs and getting outputs uh, using tools like Cypress or any other end-to-end. But sometimes you want to have direct uh, feedback and you need to shorten to reduce the layers being exercised by the test to have a clear understanding of what's going on. And for those cases, we may plan for mock objects or fake objects. So it really depends on the kind of the project and where the value is. And to, to measure the quality of the test, I would say mutation testing is great. So mutation testing is that you basically go and, and make uh, introduce a few defects in the production code on purpose. So just to see how the tests break, you will be surprised that in very often the tests don't break. So they are testing nothing or and they are not catching the defects. And you can do that manually or there are even some tools that will help you turn some symbols into code to, to uh, introduce defects. And that's very good to value or to measure not only if the tests catch defects, but also what are the kind of feedback that they are providing and you know how easy it is to spot where the issue is. Do you find that it's easy to do that on projects that you've been primarily developing on yourself, or is it easier to come in with a fresh set of eyes and try to break you know, your test suite because if you know the happy path as a software developer, well, I know this all works, and maybe there hasn't been a lot of testing there so far, but it's an interesting idea of going in there and intentionally trying to break them. But I also wonder how often developers can do that to their own stuff without, you know, how they're going to avoid that. Or mm-hmm. I would say it's easier than it, than it looks, because most of the projects that we have been working on for the last uh, 15 years, the um, test coverage is not very high. Still today, it's not very high. And many of them are integration tests. Even if the coverage is high, they don't consider many, many cases. So uh, breaking the code is not very difficult. Um, But on top of that, uh, doing some exploratory testing and thinking of, you know, what are the edges of the system and how to break it, that's a very important, I'd say, an essential skill that you should have also. But, you know, I wish... I went to the projects and exploratory testing and breaking things was the uh, the most critical part. But often it is not. the The critical part is that there there are no enough unit tests to cover to make the code maintainable. You know, to to be able to change the code without fear. I, I can appreciate that. One of the things you had also mentioned there was related to like test coverage. What do you see as like a clear distinction between, say, test coverage and code coverage? And are there metrics that help you determine whether or not there's enough code coverage? Like, do you have kind of like a rule of thumb that you and your team or the, the companies that you're working with kind of kind of focus on? Finding the number is it's always um, dangerous and can play play against you. But I'd say uh, something above fifty percent coverage. That's something you may want to have. Beyond 80% or 90%, it might not pay the cost of maintenance. It might not be able, uh, it might not be uh, feasible, or you might not return the investment. But something, I'd say something between 50 and 80 could make sense. Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often in your, your profession? 
Yeah, we actually have a markdown file that we version in, in Git, usually called tabdet.md, where uh, the development team manage the technical depth. So some issues may make it into the Kanban or the uh, board where the product manager and the other people, the stakeholders are watching or are, are participating. But we also like to have our own uh, management or care about the technical depth because there are certain things you don't want to negotiate or you don't need to have a meeting for. Say like you need two hours to clean up some um, broken breaking test or you need some more time to finish off one refactoring you were doing. And for that, we don't want to forget. So we want to be accountable and, and you know make sure that uh, the job is done. But we don't necessarily want to bring those uh, small tasks into the main board. Is that because it's difficult to get that prioritized or it just increases the cost of addressing it or a little bit of everything? Um, it is to reduce the burden of uh, management in the project. I'd say the same way you don't ask for conditional or um, recursive or a for loop, you, you don't bring that into the common board. There are also testing or refactoring tasks that will last for some minutes or a few hours and you don't want you don't want the people working around you to be more concerned about something you are gonna do in just uh, today or tomorrow or this week. Right, right. It's it's interesting. I the number of people that I speak to that are part of like large product teams where they're, you know, maybe they they feel like they 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 might bring up things that are they consider technical debt with the product team, and then it doesn't tend to get prioritized, or maybe they haven't they didn't approach the product team in a way that helped them understand the value and the benefit to the product versus how it's going to make their life as a software engineer better. Like trying to weigh up those different things. Like we need to do this because it's slowing us down as software developers. And then on the product side, they're like, we never asked you to cut corners, you know. So there's always this interesting thing of like who's who's responsible for taking care of that stuff in the same way as like a manager like if you need to clean up your spreadsheets or change the formatting you don't need to necessarily ask other people in a different department to like can you approve that i spend a couple hours taking care of cleaning up my workspace yeah i think that might have to do with the fact that some people call technical debt uh what is actually a horrible mess and uh, when the team has already lost control of the project and they are really being impeded by the code and then they desperate and need some time to really handle or tackle these big issues. And for that, of course, you need to you know, have a conversation with the board, with the stakeholders or the product manager. And this is something you need to address because that's something, it is already uh, stopping you from delivering value. And But I, I would say that's more, or that's beyond technical depth. You know, in conversations that you've had with other teams, do you feel like you mentioned that there's a horrible mess? How do you currently define, think about what technical debt actually is in, in your day-to-day work versus maybe maybe like the other example being like just things have kind of gotten into a big mess? <laughs> so technical debt for, for us is when the when we are planning for the changes ahead. When we we say, okay, this, this solution is not good enough for the future. Within one year, we will have to change this. But for now, there are other priorities, so we can go for a cheaper implementation, a faster implementation that is going to be well-tested and well-designed, 
but let's say we know it's not scalable or there might be some quality attributes missing in there, but the priority for the business is not to spend so much time in there. So we are going to plan for a temporary solution that we know we are uh, on purpose. We are deliberately creating or planning for. In the near future, we will work on that. You know, you mentioned you have a Markdown file in your in your in your Git repository. Can you give me an example off the top of your head of like what that might look like? Hey, we know this weird area of the code base or this particular area might need to be refactored. Do you ever have conditionals like if we ever get to a point where we've got X number of users in the system, this probably will not scale beyond that? How do you kind of provide that context so you can remind yourself? Is it still how do you always also know whether or not you're going to need to address that versus you you have like a gut feeling that you might need to re- address it in the future to, if there's a scaling issue because sometimes the scaling issue never manifests right hmm. yeah i think i'm realizing now that i should provide some more context and so the way we develop software is uh, most of the time we are working in pairs or so pair programming or more programming for sure for the critical design decision and architecture we are more than two people looking at the code or at a diagram and drawing and bouncing ideas to each other and brainstorming. So we are together. And so very often when we write down technical depth into the document, two people at least, and so they add some a little bit of context. But it's not too much. Uh, it's not like being alone, being a solo developer for a long time where Nobody else has a context that you have, and then you have to explain a lot of things in the tech depth. So usually we write down the file, the issue, and the rationale. So like you said, um, what is it uh, What is it affecting? Or why it's not enough for the future? Or even why we discarded other solutions? In many cases, we also like to add comments to the code to reflect uh, the conclusion. So, hey, we implemented this piece of code in this way, even though you might think that the other solution might be more natural or intuitive, but we had to discard the other solution for this reason. Because there's no way you can tell that in the code. So I'm a big fan of comments in the code to explain decisions, not to explain what the code is doing. So we try to add comments to explain all, all those things. We'll be back with our interview with Carlos in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please, 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 please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media, like on Twitter or Mastodon. By the way, we're on Mastodon now. You can find us there. I think we're there. How are you? How are things going in your world? Everything well? You can also write a review on Apple Podcasts. I wouldn't mind that. We also have a newsletter now that you can subscribe to. You can find the link at the top of maintainable.fm. Also, do you know someone that I should interview on the podcast sometime? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Carlos Black. It's like this is a good opportunity. You mentioned you're pairing quite a bit. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the types of projects that Lean Mind specializes in. So most of the time we 
we accompany teams, developers, to level up in terms of uh, skills whilst um, delivering value for the business. So they hire us to typically to add more quality to the code, uh, at the same time delivering features. And the way we do it is pairing our mobbing with the developers from our client so that we bring uh, our expertise with the testing and design, but they bring their knowledge about the domain and the issues they have every day in the business. And together we craft a code to reach the deadline, writing maintainable code. So maintainable code is actually the core of our company, how to help uh, other development teams write code that is maintainable without stopping the production for months or, or years, how, how to make it in a way that is practical. So many years ago, I used to uh, give or run training courses for them. And what happened after the training course is that they tend to do what they have been doing for years. They forget about the training. So now we are providing a little bit of training and then we work together in the code base for months. And then there might be some training, specific training days in the middle. But it's um, about growing together. And that's what we do pair programming and more programming that often. I like that approach, knowing that you know you can workshop things with people, go put them through trainings. and But then there's the implementation of that. And then you go back to your what's been working for you in the past. And so hopefully they're able to retain that. And I think that's great that you're then also kind of sticking around for a period of time to help them continue leveling up and actually implement these things. You know, if my own company does kind of something kind of similar, but I think we're, we've, we've usually been hired to come in and help build out software. And we're like, what you actually probably need is a bit more training and then for us to get out of your way. And, and you know, and so it's, this is an interesting kind of, I think we're probably, I'm kind of trying to figure out how to go on the other side of like, let's get into training. Cause I feel like we need some of that to formalize that rather than just coming in and be like, we're not just a couple of extra developers that your team needs for a period of time. Like, I feel like there's a process problem that's hard to to navigate when you just get thrown into the middle of an existing process versus trying to like rethink about how the team defines what done is or how they're going to, you know, better measure things going forward or what their pull request process is. Like, there needs to be some conversations and it, I don't feel like it can just happen organically just because I'm going to hop on a pairing session for with, a, with, with someone. Like, you need to help the, the team understand that. One of the things that I'm curious about as well, so it sounds like possibly Lean Mind usually comes in and works on existing software projects versus do you ever work on Greenfield projects very often? Uh, sometimes we do. We have now a client in, in Palo Alto. Uh, we are the delivery team for them. And in the project, we are also doing pair programming and, and more programming because it's what uh, is most effective way of developing software for us to um, addressing the issues before um, finding simple solutions up front or just uh, you know this quick feedback loop that you have when you are paid in basically you end up de delivering um, solutions faster uh, with better quality and more simple but in most of the time we are embedded in other teams and so when we arrive it's a good time to um, evaluate their onboarding process because we have to do the onboarding, try to you know, install all the software, sign up in all the tools, um, try to understand the ceremonies, what, what is the definition of done for them. And we are invited to be critical thinkers in there. 
We like to provide feedback in a way that is uh, friendly and, and supportive. And together we try, we, we change. So every time we arrive to uh, one development team or company, we grow. And the goal is that they also grow, mixing the cultures and the techniques. Uh, and finally, we deliver value to the business, which is uh, pay the money in the end. You mentioned that you know, you're being hired to come in and share your thoughts and opinions about, like, I don't think I've ever had a client say, please don't come in and not share your feedback and input. Like they want to know what's like working and what not, what's not working. But I've also been very conscientious about when you go into an existing team, how do you be a good guest in that environment? Or like, how do you start that off? Because I've been in scenarios where I've seen people come in and they're very assertive and being like, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> like, and that's causes interesting friction. How, how do you kind of think about that yourself personally? And how do you recruit people and think about how your, with your own people and your, and your, and part of your organization, help them think about what's, what it's, what does it mean to be a good consultant going in and being a good guest for that early on, you know, onboarding period and starting to make provide feedback and do you have some patterns that you try to approach with that? Hmm. We have a profound respect for our clients because all of them are um, product development teams, uh, digital products, and they are making money. And so I really, uh, as an entrepreneur, the only business that I have been able to make work is a uh, consultancy, but not the product development. I have failed several times. So I really respect the people who have uh, who are making money with their own product. So if they are there and they have a, a horrible code or difficult time with their culture or whatever, but they are making money and the people are reasonably, uh, let's say, happy in the environment, it's all respect that we feel for them. And we, we want them to reach uh, the next level, but we really value the code. Even if, even if the code is very hard to work with, we really value that the code is uh, the tool that brought them where they are profitable or you know or thriving somehow. And so, th so for the first month, we are there taking notes, trying to understand why do the things they, the way they do, and being being very polite and trying to learn from everyone. It doesn't matter if it is a junior developer. We try to learn from everyone. Um, because we need to understand, to comprehend uh, what's a problem they are fixing and what are the solutions they are addressing. And I, I would say before one month, you cannot tell them what to do at all. Absolutely. You, sh you just sh shut up and take notes and think and ask questions and try to be nice to the people. And after some weeks, you might be able to understand or to suggest uh certain improvements. Uh, actually, the best way to suggest is that you share the idea with the people in a way that they are owners of the idea. They are co-creators of the idea of how to improve the system. And that's beautiful when they bring the idea that you both have been developing together. So it's not you as an outsider suggesting what to do, it's you co-creating with them. What do we need? It's, it's interesting. I, I, I'm similar in the realm, you know, working in the consulting business for industry for a couple decades now. I don't necessarily strive in like a product environment in the same way. And I have my own reasons for that. But the 
going into those environments and trying to be like, okay, this, they have a business that's making money. The software is helping contribute to that. The people that are working there may or may not be responsible for the state of the code base that it's in today. But it also, the code base is the way it is because of all the things that went into making it the way it is. And you can't unwind that, you know, go back, set the clock back and redo it all over. When you're going into an environment in those first several weeks or month, I, like, you know, you're saying, be polite, shut up, just take notes and form alliances, you know, with other people. One of the things that I've, I've seen happen with some consulting companies, they'll come in. It's interesting, like a little bit of politicking, you know, of working with the, your peers because are you, I'm actually kind of curious with this lean mind usually brought in because of a recommendation from one of the software engineers, or is it a manager saying we need help and they bring someone in? And those are two very different situations to come into an environment and be like, I'm here to help, but there might be people on the team being like, why are you here? We can take care of this of our, ourselves. So how do you navigate that? Like all those different kind of competing interests. <laughs> yeah, usually it is a CTO or someone with a decision-making role, uh, the one who call us. So in a way, we have the management consensus or, or permission to operate. doesn't mean that the developers have to like us, and we find uh, resistance everywhere, especially when you want to be polite and you want to be nice and understand people. But if you need to write tests, uh, which is something we highly recommend, and and some people don't like it, even though you have been explaining and demonstrating and writing code with them, for some people they are not gonna like that they have to uh, they are being part of a change. Some people don't want a, any change at all, at all, and so there are always times where when resistance kick and coaching and, uh, you know, nonviolent communication. Uh, I'd say that soft skills are perhaps even more important than the, than the technical skills. That's why I'm always trying to think around, like, what does it mean to be a good guest? How to show up, be helpful, not throw people under the bus, you know, use, you, know, you mentioned like nonviolent communications. Just, it's a tricky, it's a tr tricky thing to navigate. I'm curious as, you know, when you're looking to recruit people to add to your own organization that you, I'm assuming, then place in these different client engagements, what, what sort of attributes are you looking for in those people that would make, make sense for that type of world? And do you find that there's certain types of developers, like, that's just not going to be a good fit for them? How do you kind of navigate that yourself? In the interview process, we have to like each other. Uh, this is dangerous because there, there, are always, uh, uh, there is always bias. You know, the, how you like people or don't like people. So this is dangerous. Uh, for that reason, we try to have different um, people interviewing or, or running the various interviews. So it could be me, but in other cases, it could be uh, um, a female colleague. Or We try to see how people react. And I can remember, we try also to see how people uh, act in the in the phase of bias from their side as well. There were a couple of times where the interview was uh, a guy and, and it was a female colleague of us running the interview and um, the guy didn't, you know, didn't let her talk or didn't... The behavior was different than when I arrived because I at, at that interview, there was an interview where 
I arrived in late, so my colleague was with the guy for 20 minutes or so, and he radically changed the attitude when I came in. Uh, I don't know if that's because I'm I'm the boss or what's the reason, but he wasn't nice at all before I arrived. And then in the end of the interview, when we challenged him with some uh, cases, with some scenarios, he didn't... Um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't polite at all. He was kind of aggressive, uh, grumpy. You know, there, there was no match. So doesn't matter if he's a great coder. <laughs> That's not what we need. We need the people to be nice. And then they should have very good technical skills as well. Yeah, it's like the the lone wolf programmer works, I think, in can be a really successful software developer, and they can do a lot of really good things. But if they don't know how to be part of a pack, or maybe that's a bit, bad example there. But you know, in terms of like, it's it's a challenge to kind of bring people in and think about what's this person going to be like if we put them in front of a f- unknown future client, right? And versus, can they do the work? But can they also then communicate that well with other people and help up level people on the client side of things? And so. I'm curious about that because it's always something I'm kind of rethinking as we're recruiting ourselves from time to time. So I also want to make sure we talk a little bit about your book, Sustainable Code, for those that are unfamiliar with it. And I'll include links to it in the show notes. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe you can provide like a high level intro to what the book covers and what type of level software engineers do you think this is best suited for? Yeah, thank you for asking. So the, the book is right now only in Spanish. Some people are you know, asking for the translation. But I think in English, there are already terrific books on software design. I really think this book wouldn't bring anything new at all. A little bit of my perspective, but, you know, this book is a combination of others like Implementation Patterns on Clean Code, the books by Sandy Metz, many other books that, that, that I like and that I have read and studied over the last 20 years. So this is like a combination. At the beginning, I wanted to call it maintainable code, but then I went to the dictionary and um, the word maintainable doesn't really exist in Spanish. It is understandable. I think I I believe the root of the word is Latin, but the word itself sounds a little bit um, ugly in Spanish and is not really uh, in the dictionary. So the, the dictionary asks you or recommends to use the word sustainable, which is sustainable, because it means that it can be, uh, you know, it can uh, endure or it may uh, last over time. So I find it a best um, term in Spanish. And then I, I'm i using sustainable code in English for that reason. Uh, so the notion of clean code is a metaphor that doesn't re- resonate with all the people. If I'm writing code and I need to be uh, um, to create a software that is uh, functional, why do I have to care whether the code is clean or not? You know, what's the value of clean code? And that happens because it's a metaphor. Um, but in the case of maintainable code, is it is not a metaphor. You want the code to be able to change and to be understandable over time. Because that's the way we provide continuous value to the business. And that's why I like or I prefer the, the subject or the title maintainable or sustainable code. You know, it's interesting, the thought around clean code as a way to describe code, and like it kind of assumes it feels subjective based off of, you know, like everybody might have a different idea of what 
clean is in the same way, like what is done? What does clean code look like? Do you want, is clean code something you want to manipulate and change? Or is that just going to immediately start to make it dirtier as soon as you start adding some complexity to what is perceived as clean code? So I, I, I like that, you know, thinking about, you know, obviously I have a podcast called Maintainable. I think about this, but part of that, it was always to me thinking we have, we build a lot of products, software code, and I'm a big proponent of avoiding the rewrite because I think those often are horrible. And, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor more often? Like when, what, let's, let's actually go down that path. What do you see as a distinction there when you should consider a rewrite versus just refactoring it? I would say I'm team refactor. And I can tell you one story about a big project I was working on some years ago. This is a, the, the biggest uh, automotive company in the Canary Islands. At the time, it was 2015, I believe, or one year before, when they called me. And at that time, they, their revenue was near 700 million euro. So it's not a small business. So they found one of my books uh, on TDD and one of my talks at the local university, and they wanted to consult with me for uh, the, the new regret or the new project they were planning. Uh, so they had a code base that they were developing for 12 years or so, and it was 8 million lines of code. Uh, most of it was in the form of uh, sub-procedures in the SQL Server database. So it was really, really complex. When they called me first, I didn't, you know, for some reason, I didn't believe that they were able or willing to invest in new methodology and technology. But I said, you know, they are in the neighbor island, very close to where I live. So I said to them, if you pay me the flight and the taxi and you buy me lunch, I'm happy to go and visit your office and have a discussion. You know, I was thinking they were going to say no or, or whatever, but they invited me and we have a lovely day and a meeting with the CEO and CTO and a lot of people involved. And they said to me, you know, we want to rewrite the whole thing and it's going to happen in one year from scratch. And I couldn't believe what they were telling me. I think I had to go to the to the toilet and, and wash my, my face with fresh water because I was huge project and they were they were counting on me they were saying will you help us do this and i was totally totally overwhelmed with the complexity of the project and what they were asking so i I said to them let me go home i need to reflect on this but definitely uh how to write is not what i would recommend this is not the way to go let me think of it and so some weeks later i had a plan to recruit some of my friends contractors that they have a lot of experience in, in the field. And we sent a proposal for developers, for contractors. And we spent two years working with them and modernizing the code base. And it, would, it went very, very well. But we never regret or regrow the, the whole thing. What we did is to use a um, strangled uh, fig pattern, which means that you localize or you find out part of the application that you can seal and you can put into a box, define some interface, try to replace chunk by chunk. So uh, split the big thing into small boxes, see how you can interconnect those boxes 
and then slowly, progressively go replacing one by one and learning uh, along the way because the complexity of the uh, business rules in the automotive industry is huge. That's crazy. And so there are tons of things that you had to um, learn and to understand. And we went very, very slowly. And still today, they have a lot of old code from the old days. So after seven or eight years, most of the code that you're running and that is bringing value to the business is new. But I'd say there are tons of stop procedures running in, in the database and bringing a, a lot of value as well. That's, that's good. I think the, uh, and when, you, when you push back on the, the one-year rewrite, did you just think that, was there anything around that you didn't believe that that could be done or was just the wrong decision to make and what they should do is further deepen their investment into the current approach but optimizing it? How do you help them navigate that sort of decision without them thinking, is this, you know, like sunken cost problems? Sometimes I think people are like, we just need to scrap this because we just keep throwing more money at the problem. But kind of that's what software is, right? <laughs> hmm. You know, I exposed simple math. I'd say you have been developing this software for 10 plus years with more than 20 people. How do you think it's possible to do it, to regret it in one year? And even if we were able to do so, how? why do you think we are going to create it in a way that is more sustainable or maintainable for the future? You know, because these, these, these people don't know how to write tests, for example. So even if we were able to uh, grade all the features, which is pretty much impossible, uh, the code would be messy in one year. But then on the other hand, you need to keep adding features during that year because the business kind of be you know, frozen for one year. You have to fix uh, defects and add more features. And they, you know, just having a conversation, an honest conversation about the, the context, they realized it, it wasn't impossible. I think for some reason they were expecting me to bring them some kind of magic, miraculous plan, you know? It's, it's uh, very optimistic. Um I've had a number of those conversations over the years myself as well. And it's like, well, you could potentially rewrite this, but I don't think that's going to make anything better, you know, in a year or two. If you don't change how your team's thinking about the process, you mentioned if they're not even writing tests, the maybe, yeah, maybe it'll be feel easier to start working on writing tests on a brand new thing where you don't have to worry about it, fitting testing into an existing cobbled together mess of things. But at some point, if you're working against that sort of timeline, I would imagine you start conceding, you start skipping things that might be in your best interest, like writing tests, because you're like, well, this seems like an additional thing, not just part of my day-to-day -day workflow as far as deciding what's, if this is working, if this is, this is the right approach, and what does done mean when you can finish a feature? Was it tested? How did you test it? Can someone else run those tests? Is it going to stick around? And that's, that's a lot of things to navigate because you're, you're trying to rewrite while learning a bunch of new processes in parallel and with the times, with the, so you want quality, you want it fast you know, and, you, and you want it done well. Those are like, you know, I think everybody talks about the pyramid uh, triangle or you know, what have you. And like, it's, you can pick two of those. So it feels like it's immediately thinking they're going to go faster, but they're going to probably end up in a very similar situation with maybe a new technical stack that somebody wanted to play with, but it's not necessarily going to, you know, always turn out the way you hoped it would. Yeah, totally. 
In the end, I, what I always say to the C-level management is that the value of your company is not your software, it's not your code, it's your team. So if you have a very efficient or, or effective team working on a code base and you say for some reason the code base goes to another team, then in just six, six months, the effective team would take the code base to a different place, which will be way better than, than the old one. So the happy ending of this story of the automotive company is that they embraced uh, XP and they were a very uh, big fan of the unit testing and automatic testing, uh, working in pairs. So they have been running meetups and, and conferences and promoting uh, XP in the Canary Islands. So they are a very popular company here. And the, the big value for them is a team. Now everybody wants to develop um, with test and proper design, uh, simple code, all the things that we were together working for several years. And that's a value they, they have more than the code. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. And a couple of quick last questions I wanted to dig into with you. So one was thinking about if you're, for those listening who might be curious about, you know, they, they maybe there's some concerns about their code base or maybe their team's workflow and they maybe pitched the idea of doing more pair programming, but it's maybe not been well-received or they would want to spend more time working on tests, but they don't really feel like they have the time. What sort of advice could you offer them on how to start improving that situation for themselves today? Hmm. I'd say you shouldn't try to force uh, those practices. Try to present them as, as something fun. Try to find the spaces where there is no stress, there is no tight deadline coming, and it could be a brown back session or some kind of team building activity where you present the practices as, as a game, as a, something to learn, but never as a dogma, never as something that has to be done that way. Because in the end, uh, if you can write good unit tests or integration or any kind of tests, and if you do it afterwards, I mean, I'm mixing here the idea of TDD as well, but if you can feedback and talk about your code and your ideas without pair programming, but in a way that is uh, that works for you and is not a bottleneck reviewing the code and making decisions, that's fine as well. I mean, some people engage in conversation at the beginning of the day, then they split, then at the end of the day, they share what they have done or something like that. And this, uh, if that's uh, okay for them, you don't have to 
uh, you know, force uh, pair programming. That's what I would say. Curiously, do you how much of your the time that you're programming are you pair programming with 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 somebody? Like, percent is there a percentage of your time? Do you do a lot of solo work as well in there? Is there kind of like a rough kind of approximate range that you're aiming for? Well, today it's more my, my colleagues and me, uh, so I'm more spending more time managing the company, although I try to code every week uh, on real stuff, and I do, I support other people. But I'd say my colleagues are spending something between four and seven hours a day coding with somebody else. Do you have any go-to, or is your team primarily remote and distributed? Yeah, totally. We are based in the Canary Islands, but the clients are in London or Asia, um, Germany, Madrid, Barcelona, many other places. Actually, right now, there are no, no clients in here at home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are there any go-to tools that you tend to use for helping optimize that pair programming experience? Yeah. Um, we like the um, share the IDE and some kind of uh, live share coding where multiple people may access the code and type the, not at the same time, but, you know, switching between the driver and the navigator uh, could be smooth. Uh, so that taking turns is something doable and easy to do, which is something you want. You don't want uh, the driver to spend more than, say, one hour, one hour or two hours, and you want to, people to take turns and to, you know, you don't want people to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Yep, about four to seven hours a day. Great. And thanks for sharing a little bit of detail. And you know, I know that you, you know, you've worked on a couple of books and such. Now, how did you know? Maybe if like, how do you find time to work on those types of projects in parallel to running a company? Just again, maybe some free advice for me as the owner of a company, consulting company, where I'm like, well, I'm speaking with potential clients or existing clients, occasionally pairing with people. And kind of probably more of a mentorship type of way more than anything. But I'm curious, how do you find time for that and, and prioritize that? Um, I book time for writing in the mornings. So um, before writing the book, I have like an idea. So I have a Notion document or some other kind of document where I'm writing down ideas. Uh, after weeks or months, I come up with a table of contents, say, of the book kind of TV way, so I write the, the table of contents with the chapters and the sections that I imagine the book may have. And then I say, okay, this is time to book for writing hours in the morning, which is where I am more creative, I'd say. And it's just one hour, or sometimes if I'm lucky, two hours in the morning that I book for writing over one year or one year and a half. I, I consider that to be part of my job. Perhaps because in, in Spanish there are very few books on programming and the demand is quite high in Latin America and Spain. So the book is, this one, uh, Sustainable Code, is very well received received and uh, valued and having a, a lot of uh, purchases and good comments. So in one way, I feel that I'm contributing to the Spanish-speaking community and in another way, it's a very good marketing material for, for my company. So it's uh, several goals in, in one shot. Right. Well, I appreciate the for, for sharing that. And um, 
congratulations on finishing books. Um, I once started a book and was not able to finish it in the early day. And it kind of the, the timeline, I was working as like kind of like more of an independent consultant and got a book deal, worked on a lot. And then a lot of projects came in and then I hired people and it became very difficult for me to focus on writing when I was like, how do I now deal with employees and early era of a fresh new company? I was like, I've got 10, 10 employees. How do I have a couple hours a day to work on writing a book about a brand new piece of technology that keeps changing every six months? So, um, congratulations. Maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> well, great. I'll definitely include links to, you know, your book books and, and to your website and stuff and for your company website and the show notes for everybody. Is there any how else can people kind of follow up and learn about more about you and your organization online? I'd say uh, our website, linmind.es, uh, my website, carlosblade.com. And from there, you can find the social networks, uh, newsletters, uh, Telegram channels. Uh, you can find uh, everything there. We're trying to publish more and more material in English. Uh, there are not as much as I would like to have in, in, in our website or in my blog uh, posts, but uh, you can find some stuff over there. Oh, there was one other quick question I'd like to ask everybody. Is there a non-software book that you find yourself recommending to people to read? Sure. I really like the Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I'd say that's one of the books that uh, changed my life and the way I see communication with people. So it's totally uh, recommended. Great, right. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Carlos. Thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor. I'd say, I must say, Robbie, that I really appreciate and love your humility as an interviewer. You make things very easy for me as an interviewee and make me feel uh, comfortable. And the, the way you ask questions is always you know, trying to make the conversation interesting, and that's very appreciated. I really like the, the podcast. Thanks so much. I, I appreciate the feedback. And thanks again for, for, for hopping on Maintainable with us and, and for giving our listeners something to think about. Hope you have a good rest of your day, Carlos. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, oh, oh.